You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Jeremy, I was looking at some of the upcoming literary events, and I noticed that uh, with Litquake coming up, uh, we're seeing some uh, involvement with the genre fiction community on a couple of levels. And I think this is a really interesting development because it, it struck me that we hear so much about the decline of reading and literature, but one thing that the general fiction community doesn't have to the extent that the genre fiction community does, is that sense of community brought together by events. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is the, the, the close-knit history of the science fiction community, the Spanish community, the, the Spanish roots, that, that the sense of, um, you know, kind of outsiderness of, of being, you know, alone in, in the larger communities um, brings readers and writers of science fiction together. I think there's a tradition of that um, in specifically the fantastic genres. And, and I think uh, with uh, seeing this kind of integration between the two, you know, just general literature and the kind of, in the, the events surrounding it, in, in particular Litquake, but there are other events, you know, local events around the country, um, I think this is a really interesting kind of conjunction that may help both communities. Absolutely. It's a, it's a further kind of conflation of, you know, science fiction winning the, the world, um, <laughs> you know, conquering the world in Thomas Dish's uh, famous terms. It seems like that, that model of, um, you know, readers and writers getting together and celebrating, you know, their commonalities and their, their quirks and their interests um, has spread to, to all, different, uh, all different literary genres. Um, you know, mystery conventions are huge, uh, romance conventions are huge, but also um, the, the kind of crossover with the mainstream literary genre um, is starting to create a lot of interesting interesting things, particularly in San Francisco. You mentioned Litquake. That always has a strong genre component. But um, another one that I can think of that's been going on for a very long time is uh, Writers with Drinks, uh, with Charlie Anders hosts that over at the Makeout Room in the Mission. And that always combines uh, performance artists, poetry, spoken word, and uh, science fiction writers. I know they've, they've had Kim Stanley Robinson, they've had uh, Peter F. Hamilton, you know, reading right alongside, you know, avant-garde poets and, and stuff like that. So um, it creates a really different vibe, and I think a really good vibe, because not only does it introduce people to science fiction, people who have never, or fantasy or whatever it is, who never would have picked up a book with a dragon on the cover, um, it introduces, um, you know, it does, it does the reverse. Um, it, it, it does that kind of cross-pollination thing that I think is so critical to keep, you know, the genre fiction healthy. And speaking of, of crossovers, uh, last night I went to a reading at Capitola Book Cafe uh, with uh, William Gibson. And he's a really interesting figure because I think for a lot of people, because he's the, known as the father of cyberpunk and the man who created cyberspace, 
I think when you go to one of his events or, or hear about him, you think you're going to see somebody uh, along the lines of Cory Doctorow, who's you know very active and very cyber and hip and very technologically oriented. But what you get is a guy who's a writer, a, a very much a mainstream writer, and interested in and not particularly interested in the technological aspects of science fiction, although he considers himself a native of the world of science fiction. And, and I think we saw a lot of people there who were more mainstream readers. So this kind of mingling between the literary and the mainstream classes infiltrating science fiction is going back and forth. And I think it's uh, uh, good for readers of all stripes just because it, it gets us exposed to something we might not otherwise see. Well, that's absolutely the case. I mean, it, it's interesting that you juxtapose Cory Doctorow and, uh, and William Gibson because I, I kind of see Cory Doctorow as, as like the inevitable offspring of of William Gibson. He's like, you know, cyberpunk 2.0, or he's, you know, he's the... the, the I like that, cyberpunk 2.0. That's, that's it, really. <laughs> he's the reader that grew up reading, you know, Bruce Sterling and William Gibson and the, you know, the cyberpunk writers, you know, of the early 80s. And, you know, but right alongside that, grew up with the technology that they were dreaming about in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, personal computers and, you know, massive communication and stuff is a reality for Cory Doctorow in his everyday life. For William Gibson, it was a projection of, you know, what he was seeing in the late 70s and early 80s and kind of an extrapolation. Um, and you're absolutely right with that, that kind of, um, that view of, of Gibson's work being crossover because <clears throat> he stopped writing science fiction per se and he's writing you know he stopped writing 10 minutes in the future and he's writing you know 10 seconds in the future or you know now he's writing 10 seconds in the past or i mean it's it's a really interesting way that his publisher has been able to maintain his science fiction base but spread him out to a broader audience and particularly for some of the cyberpunk writers or writers who are known for their cyberpunk it seems like their mainstream publishers have done that for them. Uh, Neil Stevenson is another writer who, you know, with his grand historical sweeping epic, you know, three billion word things, um, the Baroque cycle, um, his publisher really broke him out of the, the science fiction category. And, you know, that was strictly a marketing decision, but the fact that they're able to do that uh, speaks volumes to the kind of like how open readers are of general fiction. I think readers are much more open than than critics and you know the kind of the gatekeepers of of, of high culture. And, and let's not let's not diminish uh, Doctorow's contribution to this. He's also has a lot of appeal outside the genre because of his activism. I think he appeals to uh, a more politicized. Um, uh, segment of mainstream literature, and I think that he's doing a lot to, to break down that barrier between science fiction and the rest of literature, and just, it, it's a good book. It's a book. That's what it is. It's got words in it. Yeah, absolutely. More, more important than being, it being a science fiction book, it's a book, and it speaks to, you know, the human experience, and in Cory Doctorow's case, you know, it speaks to, you know, the, the human experience as it runs headlong into you know, the kind of technolo technological change. And that used to be the purvey of strictly science fiction, but, you know, that's now the purvey of everybody who goes to work in the morning and, and boots up their computer. And, and let's talk a little about 
about Litquake because they're being involved with genre fiction on a couple of different levels. Um, they're going to, I, I know they're trolling through Borderlands. And uh, do you still work with Borderlands? Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and so tell us a little bit about how Litquake works with uh, Borderlands. Well, Litquake nights at Borderlands are always um, really crazy <laughs> because it, once again, the Litquake Umbrella Organization ends up bringing a lot of tension. A lot of people who don't normally go out to, you know, readings and literary events out to do the circuit, as it were. Um, I mean, there's another event called, like, Open Studios um, in San Francisco that is for um, visual artists, and they open up their studios, um, and they have a schedule. And people will, like, set aside blocks of time to just travel from studio to studio. And for Litquake... My experience has been a lot of people do that for the readings and writings. They'll they'll sample stuff over the afternoon and night. And so we'll get hundreds of people into the store over the course of, you know, the three or four different readings that we're having during the afternoon and the, in the evening. And so it really brings out a, an incredibly diverse audience. Some local people, they're supporting the local writers that they know who are reading, but others are, you know, oh, down the street was that thing that I really wanted to see, and then this sounded interesting next door. You know, they were at Modern Times for their political, you know, release of that book, and then they went over to Borderlands because it was right next door. So that kind of community and that kind of density of, of venues, because there's also, you know, Liquid goes on not just in bookstores, but also at bars and, and cafes and stuff like that. So it really creates a... a a nice soup, I think, because it, it really in- introduces you to a lot of different people. And it also, there's going to be a Litquake event uh, associated with SF and SF. So, uh, I, again, we're, we're reaching out further into the, the genre fiction world, and the genre fiction world reaches back because, heck, I, I think that there's this perception that people who read science fiction read only science fiction, and I don't think that's actually the case. Yeah, well, I think... I think there's a good, you know, that perception is there because there's a, 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 a very visible, you know, minority of people who that's the, that is the case. Um, and, you know, it's just like saying all science fiction films are like Star Trek. Um, you know, that's one of the most obvious examples, but it's not the case of every science fiction film. And science fiction readers are just as diverse. Um, and... You know, with the confluence of, of technology um, into everybody's everyday life and, you know, mainstream publishers pushing, you know, ostensibly science fiction or fantastic writers like Neil Gaiman um, firmly into the mainstream marketplace, uh, you have a lot of readers who, who sample from both. And, you know, things like SF and SF and the, the turnout and the people that show up for that event really kind of demonstrate the broad broad range of readership. And uh, another thing that demonstrates the broad range of readership is the presence. I mean, I actually would never have expected to see somebody like Terry Goodkind or, or George R.R. R. Martin on the New York Times bestseller list, but there they are. And, and you know, it, that's, that's heartening to see that kind of, you know, the penetration into the deep, super popular, generally somewhat shallow marketplace of, of big-name genre fiction authors, whether or not you're, uh, you know, like them, it's nice to see that presence of the genre um, represented in popular culture. 
Absolutely. I mean, that was the big growing up phase of, um, of genre fiction uh, that happened, or in specifically science fiction and fantasy, that happened in the 80s, where you finally started seeing, you know, the big, art, the big writers ending up on the bestseller list, be they Arthur C. Clarke or Robert Heinlein. You know, there was that group that broke into the New York Times bestseller list in the 80s, and it was really the first time that science fiction had reached that broad, broad market. Now, at the same time, it's it's kind of frustrating uh, for me because while you see more science fiction and fantasy, particularly fantasy these days, on the bestsellers list, the overall sales numbers of mid-list science fiction are down. Print runs from the major publishers of mass market and you know trade paper hardcover science fiction are lower than they were in the 80s. So you have this kind of odd dichotomy. And, and again, I, I blame that on the fact that, you know, during the 80s, there wasn't as much of a broad infusion of science fiction into all aspects of, of culture. You know, these days, you can get science fiction in pretty much every medium and even in every other literary genre, be it, you know, military thrillers or, um, you know, Michael Shaban or wherever you go, there is fantasy, there is science fiction. And so I think the, the, the kind of slipping of the mid-list is a result of that. So it's a two-sided coin. That's an interesting observation, Nate, because it is true that a, a lot more very much straight popular literature that you wouldn't really ever necessarily call or describe as genre fiction or science fiction still is happy to incorporate as much science fiction or bits of the genre toolkit as, you know, they need to tell their story. And, and I think that's, that's somewhat heartening just because, again, it suggests that uh, I think a certain segment of those readers who might look at uh, something like a uh, um, a Tom Clancy novel and see these kind of cyber wars and think, well, gosh, that's I kind of like that aspect of it and, and might take another look at somebody like John Shirley or um, uh, Neil Stevenson or somebody like that who, who's, you know, more firmly in the genre fiction thing, uh, world. And speaking of Neil Stevenson, he has a new novel coming out. That's right. And, and it's actually, it's a return to genre fiction. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which uh, I find a pretty darn exciting. Yeah, absolutely. No, Neil Stevenson is is a very unique writer because, and and I've always been heartened by the direction that his career has taken. Because after this, you know, because he wrote several midlist novels before he had breakout success with Snow Crash, and rather than write Snow Crash Two, Snow Crash Three, Snow Crash Four, and just do the same thing, he took he took that kind of like carte blanche that he had from his breakout success and went on to do really, really interesting things that are, you know, very different from what he, you know, was, you know, quote unquote, famous for. And so I think when a writer chooses to do that, to eschew the easy route, um, is, is, is where you see some of the most interesting things. And so I'm really looking forward to this return to science fiction after he's been doing you know, Cryptonomicon and the Baroque cycle. Um, I think he can only become a better science fiction writer, you know, after having made that detour. And, and actually, as as you look at this novel, the the influence of the Baroque cycle 
on it is is really really clear. There's a heavy kind of monastic element in in this book, and and it looks very very interesting and long, and it even comes with a compact disc of music that was composed specifically for the piece. So it looks like he's moving into some multimedia places, and that's not a bad bad way for any writer to go. <laughs> I was thinking of the the multimedia slash performance art that William Gibson did back in the early 90s with his with his uh, short piece of flash fiction that disappeared when it was ex- exposed to sunlight. Um, <laughs> it was, it, you know, that was another example of, of a writer taking his, you know, his fame, as it were, and, and really pushing the boundaries of, of, you know, what is science fiction and what is art and, and doing something really interesting, I thought. But yeah, yeah, that, that multimedia incorporation is it's always fun. I remember Ursula Le Guin had a audio recording with uh, one of her books, and it was the poems and 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 chants and teachings of you know this this fictional culture um, that was the subject of the book. And so I think science fiction has a, a tradition of that. So that's kind of cool. Uh, while I've got you on the phone, why don't you catch me up on the latest excitement from Nightshade? You guys have a, a new novel out by Greg Egan, right? Yeah, Incandescence. Uh, it's his first novel in a long time, and it's it's really really hard SF. Um, big in it. Part of the novel is told actually at least half the novel is told from a non-human point of view, and kind of focuses on their kind of culture and development of science. And so, um, it's it's Greg Egan. It's it, it'll really make your head spin around. I remember reading Permutation City when that came out a, a bazillion years ago and, and thinking how, what, what a talent we, we had in science fiction. And he disappeared for a while, and this is, I guess, because he was interested in the, some political activism. Am, am I correct? I'm not really sure about the political activism in, in Australia, what he's been doing, but certainly that has consumed a lot of writers of late. And, and well, it should. We've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. The latest book from Nightshade is... Incandescence by Greg Egan. It's his first novel in quite some time and well worth picking up. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Yeah, you got it. Great talking with you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony. <laughs>